Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. For some time, I've had a grievance with Bob Ross. If you don't know who Bob Ross is, open your phone, look him up. You need to know who he is. He's a cultural icon. I grew up watching Bob Ross uh, weekly. Uh, He's a painter with the most extravagant hairdo anyone on PBS has ever had. Now, on on PBS, this this particular uh, personality emerged. And I remember watching him, and and I was reacquainted my son, he's seven now, but when he was four, he really got into Bob Ross because it showed up on Netflix. We don't have cable, we don't have an antenna, we have Netflix. And so my son uh, started binge-watching Bob Ross. And so as I'm sitting here watching this happen in my son and this, like, tranquility overcome an otherwise unruly child, I had to, like, do some, some intellectual circles to decide what my real relationship with Bob actually is. And here's, here's my issue with Bob Ross. <clears throat> he paints these, these pictures, and they're all landscapes. He paints these, these pictures of the way the world is in the kind of way where many times I would find myself imagining the places that he was painting. And, and in some ways even, intellectually pretending to be there. And that was, that was how I interacted with Bob as he would paint. He would paint these, these, these masterpieces slowly. And, and he would include you in the process so much so that by the time he was done, that place was yours. You owned that place. And it was happening to my son. But the hard part, and this is my grievance with, with Mr. Ross and his paintings, is they weren't true. Every single painting that he ever put on canvas was a lie. It wasn't a real place. It was made up. Now, I like what he did. I like how he did it. It was fantastic. But thinking about that as an adult, quite often I think that is exactly our relationship with the world around us, particularly as Christian leaders. Now, I was thinking about this. I was talking this over with my, my wife before I came out. Uh, In our context in Portland, Oregon, we have about a third of our community that that doesn't know Jesus. So I'm constantly having to catch people up. Today, that's not the case. I'm going to expect you to have a certain amount of literacy, a certain amount of competency, because you are the youngest adult generation leading in the church today in our society. My expectation is that you can handle what it is we're going to be talking about today. And in essence, my belief is so thorough that I, I have to move through some things fairly quickly, assuming you already get them. But let me name one thing here in light of Mr. Ross's paintings. The education you're getting here in Boise Bible College in this particular community is second to none when it comes to biblical literacy and leadership development. I haven't found any other place that does it as well as BBC does. And I'm not saying that simply as an alumni. I've seen other institutions, other models, other ways of educating people. This is fantastic. 
So if you think in your mind for a second about a massive circle over here, and let's just categorize this as everything we know to be true about God, us, humanity. Maybe put a label on it like the gospel at the center of it. The incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, everything leading to the gospel, everything leading out of the gospel, all of the imperatives, all the ethics, everything is in this circle right here. The issue with this circle isn't that it's imperfect. It's actually really beautiful and amazing. But much like what Bob Ross has done in painting pictures, it stands separate from the real world until it intersects something else. And this is what Bob was missing in all of his paintings, a story, a story of the way things actually are. So imagine a second circle over here that encompasses everything we know to be true about the human story, all the places where you've lived, all the people that you know, all the relationships that you have, everything that is actually happening on planet Earth. We'll just label that as place or story. Now, these two things stand apart from one another quite often. And in many ways, we go down the road of life believing we can move between them, one time being just in the theological circles, talking about things of God, good things, and other times having to deal with our neighbor who's really frustrating us. And never do the two intersect. And what we see happening in the story of Scripture is the intersection between everything that God is up to and the reality of the human place. And those two places, these two circles, begin to to overlap with one another. And what we see happening in the story of Scripture over and over and over again is a reality check. That things are not as good as we think they are. In fact, follow any thread in the story of Scripture, and it's not Bob Ross's painting. Any storyline in Scripture that you can put your finger on, tug on the thread, and see what emerges is a story of real people who are really broken and oftentimes more tragically broken than we want them to be. They're more fallible, they're more sinful, the fall has more thoroughly affected them than we ever wish it would. And yet these are the people portrayed in Scripture, and it's for good reason, because the stories of the people in Scripture are the stories of the people living today. It's your story and my story and the story of your neighbors and your friends and your family members, every single person on earth has been more thoroughly affected by the realities of the fall than we oftentimes want to admit. We prefer to live in Bob Ross's painting. And in reality, we've got to live in something more like the Game of Thrones. And as that emerges, as we understand that things are twisted and broken, shattered and sinful, a question emerges. What do we do about that? What comes of this? Now, I was really impressed. I don't know who put it together, but someone put together a pretty robust chapel directive for the course of this school year with layers upon layers of ideas about what what you were trying to accomplish in chapel services, how that works its way into your life to help you transform. And I thought it was brilliant. And yet it it was a little bit heavy because you have a theme for the year and a theme for the month and a theme for this particular time that we've got gathered together right now. And two words stuck out to me in these these themes as it developed as I prepared for this particular moment with you. The word prayer and the word humility. And as as I asked to talk here today about prayer, great topic, 
fantastic, driven by humility. But as I thought on it, I got stumped really quickly in this regard. It is my thorough belief that every single one of you in this room already knows that you should pray. You've heard it before. You've probably told other people that they should pray. The imperative, the oughtness of prayer has already been laid on you, probably so thoroughly that at times you feel like it's burdensome. And you probably don't need one more person standing in front of you saying, by the way, you should pray. So let's leave that as an assumed reality, that we all in this room understand that, yes, we should pray. But my question is why? Why should we pray? Should we pray because a Bible college professor told us that we should? Should we pray because the story of Scripture has many moments in it where the imperative is actually there, pray? Or because we see from the indicatives a story of people actually praying, should we pray because they prayed? All of those contribute, I think, to some of this rationale. But they don't, I don't think, they don't give us the impetus to pray that understanding the real story of humanity would. So I want to tug on one thread very quickly this morning. We're going to take a run through about 1,500 years of Old Testament history. Are you up for it? Yeah, we're going to do it in about four minutes, so you better be ready for it. Um, as, as we tug on this string of this one thread of storyline, it's my belief here, and I have this with my church community of people who are not theologically trained, not edging towards leadership in the located church or in parachurch or counseling or teaching like you are, that they can connect some dots. So I'm going to expect that you can as well. Between the story that we tug on and the story that you're living. Do you remember Jacob and Esau? You know them. Two brothers struggling for a birthright. One brother deserves it because he's older, Esau. One brother who takes it because he wants it, Jacob. Do you remember what happens between the two of them? It breaks their family. The two of them go separate ways. Tragic, broken, and messy. And these are God's people. These are God's people, fourth generation. Established. Supposed to be the people promised covenant relationship with God. Out of those two families that emerge, Jacob's family and Esau's family, are two people groups. The Hebrews and the grandson of Esau, the Amalekites. Maybe you've heard of them before. For about a thousand years, the two different families feuded, rubbing up against one another in territorial claims, in wars, in sabotage, in murder, and it wasn't resolved. God had commanded his people, generation after generation, take care of the Amalekites, go and utterly destroy them, and that never fully happened. The Amalekites continued to press into the storyline of the Hebrews for a thousand years. Now the Hebrews decide that they want a king other than God himself. You know the story. Saul is appointed king. Saul's the first king of Israel, and as king of Israel, he is charged to go and do what no one else has done in the Hebrew lineage and take care of the Amalekites. And there's a corresponding king in the Amalekites, a man by the name of Agag. And he's supposed to go and kill Agag, and you remember what he does? botches it. He makes a mess of it. He's supposed to do it, and he doesn't. Now, this situation doesn't seem that profound 
until you move 500 years further down the story. 500 years later, the Hebrews find themselves in captivity under the Persians, under a king named Xerxes. Now, Xerxes is the single most powerful ruler ever to emerge in human history at this point. He has a land claim from India to the lower Kush area of Egypt, 127 provinces, and you thought America was big and powerful. This king is so full of himself, so narcissistic, he decides he's going to throw a six-month party just to celebrate his kingship. And everyone in the whole, in the whole empire is commanded to party with him. And if that wasn't enough, at the end of six months of partying, he decides he's going to throw an even more intense seven-day party in the capital, Susa, present-day Iran. And he throws this party, and in Susa, in the capital, in the citadel, he commands the people who are taking wine to everybody to give them as much as they possibly can take, and then some, just to celebrate himself. Now, if you remember the story, how it goes, there's a drunken party out in the courtyard for the men and an equally drunken party inside the, the palace for the women. And at one point, King Xerxes decides it would be a good idea for his queen to come out and party with the men, wearing nothing but her crown. Vashti is commanded to come in front of the men and display her beauty in full view of the men who were drunk in the courtyard. Remember what happens? She refuses. A bridge too far. You will not sexually exploit me in this moment. Xerxes loses his mind, goes nuts. He decides she's no longer to be queen, cuts her off. And he goes on the hunt for a new queen. Of all the people in the, in the whole kingdom, he starts looking for virgins who are beautiful to replace his queen who wouldn't walk in front of his drunken friends. And out of that situation emerge two characters, a man named Mordecai and a man named Haman. Mordecai is a Hebrew. Haman is an Agagite, the descendant of King Agag, who wasn't taken care of 500 years before. The feud is still on in Persia. Now, between these two men, what emerges is a broken, twisted example of a power struggle. Haman is second in command under Xerxes of everything, and Mordecai is the leader of the Hebrews in captivity. Mordecai has an adopted daughter, his niece. And to protect her, he tells her, go into the running to become the queen. Go into the running so that you can be safe. She's gorgeous and she's a virgin. Now this King Xerxes uses his power and exerts his power by every night for about four years having a different bride, potential bride, come in, sleep with them for the night, and then he moves them into his concubine service. It's a twisted, messed up display of power and control. And on one such night, the daughter, adopted daughter of Mordecai is up. Her name is Esther. Esther, at this point, is the byproduct of 1,500 years of problems. And that's just one thread. She now is just simply a body, a display, something to be used by another powerful man. 
And she's there because of the ongoing sin and rebellion of her people over 1,500 years. And she bears the brunt of a long, broken story. You know how it goes. She's picked. She becomes the queen. She rises to power. But then things get worse. Now there's a massive issue. Mordecai has risen to some prominence. Haman, second control of all of the empire. They begin feuding publicly. Haman wants Mordecai dead. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to exterminate every last Jewish person in the Persian Empire. He puts a decree out, gets the king to sign it, to say anyone can take up a sword and murder their neighbor who's Jewish on the last day of the year. And this is in January. So for a year, terror is going to reign in Persia if you're an Israelite. It's at this exact moment that something emerges in Esther. And I want to turn your attention to it. I don't want you to open a Bible. I don't want you to flip open your phone. I want to read this to you. How something changes in the storyline. Mordecai is broken by this new decree. It seems like Esther doesn't really know what's going on. She's protected inside the king's household. And so Mordecai sends a messenger to his, his daughter. And he tries to make her aware that she can do something about it. And with familiar language, this is what Mordecai says. When Esther's words were poured to Mordecai, which are the words, I'm not sure I can do anything about the situation, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Powerful words from Mordecai, right? The words that he says right here change something in her. Something happens between the good story that she's been holding on to, of everything that's good, everything God has done, all the beauty of it, the protection she has in the king's household, and the reality of the situation on the ground through the conversation with Mordecai. And when the two come crashing together with these words, a word of emphasis that maybe you can do something about it if you can take both into view at the same time, something flips in her. And in the storyline of the book of Esther, what we actually see right here is the prominence of Mordecai rescind and the dominance of Esther emerge. She becomes the dominant driving force at this point in the story, and here's what she does. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa, again, it's a capital, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Do you see what landed on Esther in that moment? She finally got a full dose of the accurate story of what was going on in Persia. And she could see herself as a person who could do something about it. 
And even at great risk to herself, the potential of walking into the king's chamber uninvited and meeting her death, she leans into trusting God. She gives instructions to Mordecai, you get the Jews outside of the, of the compound of the palace to begin fasting and praying for me. And I will get myself and all of my attendants to also fast and pray. And for three days, day and night, we will go in front of God to see what could come from this. No one told her, you've got to pray. No one said, you need to lean into God's provision. No one said, don't you know it says in Torah that this is important for you. When she got a healthy dose of the way things actually are on planet Earth, she couldn't help but pray. One of the most humbling stories of my life has emerged over the last six years of living in Portland, Oregon. Not because Portland is such a tragic, broken place. It's tragic, it's broken, absolutely. Equally as broken as Boise, Idaho is. But beginning to meet people, know people, love people who are willing to lower their facade or who already had, who had no facade to hold up, who began sharing their stories of brokenness, began changing in me my understanding of what God's up to on earth. Here's the facts on the ground. You guys are in a highly intentional, fairly insulated, growing environment at Boise Bible College. There's good to that, and there's bad to that. One of the elements that's dangerous is if you move out of this environment that is set aside for you to grow and develop as leaders following Jesus really, really well, and you don't walk into the streets of Boise, Idaho, and Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, and Bullhead City, Arizona, if you don't walk into those streets and begin understanding the actual storyline of humanity, chances are you will always feel burdened to pray. You will always feel like you have an obligation to pray. You will feel like you should trust God, but you will have no reason to. You see, it is not until we face how dark the situation is that we can see how much we need God's help. My pastoral associate, Sarah, she's our executive pastor in our small church, reminds me often, almost weekly, we wouldn't know how good the good things are if we also didn't know how bad the bad things are. That is the truth of what God is doing on earth. You as leaders, you as the youngest generation of adult leaders in the American church today, you cannot segment your life off into a Bob Ross painting. You have to walk away from naive, built, created, insulated story and walk into friendships and relationships and environments that are messy, broken, and tragic and take with you the hope of Jesus 
in that space right there as you take hope with you where God takes you into hard, difficult relationships, I'm convinced you will pray. Let's pray together. God, today, in short form, God, we're exposed again to the reality of the way things are. And to be honest, it barely scratches the surface. The mess associated simply with the lives of those of us breathing air in this room is enough to stifle us, to stop us, to overwhelm us. And then to think about all the relationships that we represent and all the brokenness that comes with them. And then beyond that, the people we don't know, God, it's, it's overwhelming. And yet, God, our hope is that you are the God that's doing something about all of that mess. And that you have called each and every one of us to incarnate your goodness in the places where we exist, where we live, in the relationships that we love. So God, help us. Help us carry hope wherever we go. Help us be humble as we understand the story life around us. And God, may we depend on you in every moment as we recognize how deeply we need you. We love you. Pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.